This is Africa Digest. It's 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on Channel 902 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomila Lezondi with Asanda Matzaunyane, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Let's take a look at the top stories on Africa Digest this hour. The UN mission in the DRC says there's still a lot of work to be done in that country. Ultraba militants in Somalia threaten another attack soon. In economics, economist warns that more job losses are looming in South Africa's mining sector. And in sports, Kenya's Gomahia tops Group A of the Kagame Cup. Let's get the news from Asanda Matonyan. Good evening. South Sudan's warring parties have given have been given up to the 4th of August to review a compromise agreement designed by the Intergovernmental Authority Development IGAD. The agreement offers proposals for a new government. Peace talks are expected to resume on August 6th. The agreement was handed over to the two parties in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, by the new South Sudan peace talks mediation mechanism called IGAD+. Koleta Wanjohi reports. The 74-paged compromise agreement was designed by the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, the body that has been mediating the South Sudan peace talks since December 2013. It was formed after South Sudan warring parties failed to sign a peace agreement in March 2015. It outlines a framework with which South Sudan can address the crisis in the country. It has been formed from the agenda of discussion by the South Sudan warring parties over the past 19 months. Issues whose solutions have been proposed include establishment of a government of national unity, permanent ceasefire and transitional security arrangements, humanitarian assistance and reconstruction as well as how justice should be dispensed. Corruption is rife in the asylum-seeking process. That's according to a new study conducted by Lawyers for Human Rights in partnership with Wits University's African Center for Migration and Society. The study, the first of its kind, interviewed asylum seekers in South Africa. Researcher Ronnie Ahmed. We had anecdotal reports of people experiencing corruption. So we decided we wanted to do this study to get a broader picture and to have empirical evidence of just how widespread the problem is. So we surveyed close to a thousand respondents at the country's five refugee reception offices. And what we found was that close to a third of them reported experiencing corruption at some point in the asylum application process. The trial of nine police officers implicated in the death of a Mozambican national, Mido Marcia, in Joburg or Johannesburg, has been postponed in the High Court yet again. Family members of Marcia and all the nine accused were present in court. Marcia died in police custody after being dragged at the back of a police van two years ago. Cell phone footage of how Marcia was dragged went viral, causing outrage worldwide. Marcia's mother-in-law, Madanisile Nguenya. Uh, it's fine, ma'am. It's fine. I'm waiting for tomorrow. Uh, I think tomorrow 
it was something better happened. British Prime Minister David Cameron says he is ready to order airstrikes on Islamist militant targets in Libya and Syria. This in action to prevent attacks on the streets of Britain as he steps up his rhetoric against Islamic State insurgents. Cameron was speaking to reporters in Indonesia on the first leg of a four-day trade mission. He is due to meet Indonesian President Joko Widodo later today to discuss how the two countries could cooperate in the battle against Islamic militancy. The Islamist threat is high on the political agenda in Britain after a gunman killed 30 British tourists at a Tunisian beach resort last month in an attack claimed by Islamic State. Finally, U.S. President Barack Obama says he is yet to hear a strong factual argument against a nuclear deal with Iran. Obama has also criticized rhetoric about the agreement from some leading members of the Republican Party. Speaking in Ethiopia during a tour of African nations, Obama says the majority of the world's nuclear scientists and non-proliferation experts backed the July 14 accord, indicating it was the best way to stop Iran acquiring nuclear weapons. For Channel Africa News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyani. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. Thank you very much, Asanda, for that news update. It's 17.05. Well, it's now 17.06 Central African time right here on Africa Digest. On Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The UN mission in the Democratic Republic of Congo, MONUSCO, has said that there's still a lot of work to be done that needs to be done in that country. The statement was made by the mission's chief, Martin Kobler, while back from the UN Security Council in New York among the identified works that need to be done are security related works such as neutralization of armed groups especially FDLR and a lot of election related work Jean-Noël Bamwenze reports from Kinshasa The chief of the UN mission here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has spoken to media here for people to know more about the meeting he has attended at the UN Security Council in New York. Martin Kobler told the journalist he has informed the members of the Security Council about a lot of work that still need to be done in this country. He said there was a big unanimity to bring support to MONUSCO. Among the works that have been identified are security and restoration of the state authority and a lot of election-related works such as the registration of young voters, financing elections, organizing peaceful elections and more. And as far as security is concerned, there is a big frustration at the UN Security Council since no significant progress has been made in fighting the democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda, according to MONUSCO boss Martin Kobler. I highlighted three points. The first point is, of course, the security situation. I have to justify progress. Uh, there was a big anonymity on this, uh, of the Security Council to support MONUSCO, but there was also 
also a big frustration on the non-progress in the FDLR file. Everybody told me, what can you do What together with the government in order to bring this to an end? We have progress in the FAPI, we have progress against the ADF, not enough, and there is still a lot of work to do, but the FDLR file is blocked and it's very important that authorization is given by the government to continue with the operations. The second question is, of course, the electoral file and the national consultations, the role of MONUSCO, of the United Nations, uh, to offer good offices, because Burundi is, of course, an example where there is violence and there is a lack of dialogue between the interlocutors. This should, of course, be avoided here. It's very important to go on with the process of having an agreement, an agreement on the electoral calendar, on the financing, on the inclusion of the five million young voters on the voters list. I mean, there's a lot of work to do here. And the third problem is the question of the strategic dialogue with the government, the exit strategy of MONUSCO. This is, uh, as you know, the government and the United Nations. We want to reduce our presence here to find an understanding on this topic. So these were the three big clusters, a lot of work to do in the future. The UN mission is really concerned when it comes to security and restoration of the state authority. The mission chiefs say the political decision is needed for the resumption of military cooperation as far as the neutralization of democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda is concerned. Meanwhile, Monusco boss believes all these problems the Democratic Republic of Congo is facing can find sustainable solutions since there is a clear agenda in that way. Once more, Martin Kobler explains. There is a clear agenda and there is a clear position also of the international community when it comes to the respect of constitution, to the keeping the electoral timetable. This is all very, very clear what we think. Really, uh, I'm a little bit concerned about the non-progress in the FDLR file because this really has to go ahead. But this requires a political decision, really a decision to authorize the FRDC to again enter into cooperation with Discussions are underway between the DRC government and the UN mission here to try and find a way to resume their military cooperation in the operation against the Rwandan rebels of democratic forces for the liberation of Rwanda. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. At least 20 people have been declared dead and 85 wounded after this weekend's suicide bombing in the Cameroon town of Marwa. Officials say the suicide bomber who detonated a series of bombs is a 13-year-old girl. Moki Kinzega reports from Yaoundé. Midia Wabakari, governor of the far north region of Cameroon, says the 13-year-old detonated a series of explosives in the popular Pongver neighborhood, barely a kilometer from the location of last Wednesday's twin suicide bomb attack. He says at least 20 people have been declared dead. He says the suicide bombers have changed tactics and are now using teenage girls to execute their devilish plans. He says the area they targeted receives at least 2,000 people on a daily basis, adding that he has mobilized all medical staff, the Red Cross, and other volunteers to attend to the injured. Très rapidement, 
les forces militaires de l'ordre, les autorités administratives, municipales, législatives, tout le monde s'est mobilisé pour venir en aide. Cameroon's defense minister, Edgar Alemebenga, has condemned the attack and calls for vigilance. He says more security measures have been taken to avoid other attacks and has called on the population to collaborate by denouncing suspects. Les populations doivent euh, acquérir une culture de la vigilance. He says the population must develop a culture of vigilance because Boko Haram has changed strategy. He says all suspects should be reported to the military that more than ever before needs the collaboration of the populace. He says he is urging business persons, traditional rulers, administrative authorities and everyone to constitute themselves in self-defense groups to save lives. De la pleine coopération de tous nos compatriotes. Faut qu'ils soient vigilants. There have been no claim of responsibility, but Mebengo has blamed the terrorist group Boko Haram. The group, founded in neighboring Nigeria, pledged its allegiance to the Islamic State group, and its leader, Abubakar Shekau, vowed to attack the Central African country because it supported Nigeria in the war against Boko Haram. Last Wednesday, dozens were killed in Marwa in a twin suicide bomb attack in which two teenage girls disguised as merchants and beggar and detonated bombs in a market and a popular neighborhood called Bamari. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzuka in Yaoundé. And Al-Shabaab militants in Somalia have announced on their clandestine radio station monitored in the capital Mogadishu that they will carry out another attack at an undisclosed location. The announcement comes shortly after the militants killed 11 people after using explosives to partially destroy a building housing four embassies. James Shimanyula filed this report. The clandestine radio station which Al-Shabaab militants used to announce their next attack was heard in the Somali capital Mogadishu. However, the militants did not say precisely when the attack will occur or disclose the place they are targeting. The militants' announcement comes shortly after they used explosives to blow up part of Jazeera Hotel in Mogadishu. The hotel located near Mogadishu airport houses four embassies and is heavily guarded. I reached Opio Ododa, African Union's senior civil affairs officer in Mogadishu, by telephone and asked him for an update starting with the casualties. Here is how Ododa responded to my questions beginning with the casualties. Looking at uh, what has happened and given that Obama was just here a couple of hours ago, what goes through your mind about security in Mogadishu? Al-Shabaab has uh, claimed responsibility for what they did. They have mentioned that this is a, a retaliation for the offensive that Amazon has uh, started in uh, 
lower Juba region, particularly in Barbera. So I don't think it's related to what the fact that Obama was in Nairobi. In other words, uh, they are just retaliating for Amisom's um, claim of victory in uh, a place called Dineso and Barbera in Gede region, which is um, east of uh, Kenyan town of Eliwak on the border. Yes, uh, in fact, um, that 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 is what uh, Al Shabaab leaders uh, reaction to the offensive positive results that uh, Amazon has uh, achieved in these two towns. Do you see a bright, uh, secure feature in Mogadishu? taking into consideration that uh, that uh, Jazeera Hotel has been um, badly damaged? Government, together with Amazon, are conducting patrols in the city, and it's not certain because these are isolated cases within the city. I think the security situation in Mogadishu is improving, but still very, very unpredictable. So... Is there an atmosphere of fear sweeping across Mogadishu or where you are right now in Mogadishu? How can you characterize it? The situation is characterized by uncertainty. Currently, Al Jazeera Hotel was housing at least four international embassies. So all these four embassies, uh, officials have been affected. Incidences like this happen a lot in Mogadishu. So for the Somali people, uh, they will continue with their responsibilities as usual. As African Union's senior civil affairs officer Opio Ododa has just said, Al-Shabaab attacks are common in Mogadishu, but the U.S. President Barack Obama is of the view that the East African and the Horn of Africa regions are winning war against the militants. Before leaving Nairobi for Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to address the African Union and to officially meet the authorities in Ethiopia, Obama, who was in the Kenyan capital Nairobi, was optimistic that the region had recorded successes in reducing Al-Shabaab attacks. That report by James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest.
You're listening to Africa Digest. Your time is 17.19 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa with Ms. Pumela Lezondi. With you until 1800 hours Central African Time this evening. Now tens of thousands of Burundian refugees fleeing the current political unrest face a dire situation in the Nyarugusu camp in neighboring Tanzania. According to Global Medical Aid Agency, Doctors Without Borders or MSF, the overcrowded camp has reached a breaking point. An estimated 78,000 Burundians are sheltered at the site, joining 64,000 Congolese refugees who have been there since 1997. Elaborating more on the situation is MSF's humanitarian policy advisor, Jens Pedersen. Well, it's a very challenging situation. You must keep in mind that this camp was built in the 90s to host 50,000 refugees. Now, on top of the almost 80,000 refugees that have arrived there from Burundi. In the camp, we already had more than 60,000 Congolese refugees. So we've got more than 140,000 refugees in a camp built for 50,000. So that comes with an incredible challenge when it comes to adequate living space and space for people just to have some dignified living conditions. I mean, we've seen up to 200 people in tents that are each by 20 meters long. So is a real, real challenge. And the refugees from Burundi continue to arrive in big numbers, right? We have seen, up until very recently, and we are continuing to see almost a thousand people a day across the border from Burundi. So indeed the situation remains concerning and it remains very serious. Now, the outbreak of diseases such as cholera is also said to be an issue of concern. Elaborate more on that. Yeah, in the early part of the arrival of refugees from Burundi, we did have outbreaks of cholera. At Dr. Small Borders, we subsequently vaccinated more than 100,000 refugees in the camp against cholera. So cholera at the moment is under control. But because of overcrowded living conditions, because the supply of clean water, for example, is not initially made for such a high number of refugees, there are other concerns. We're seeing refugees suffering from respiratory tract infections, pneumonias, because of overcrowded and very dusty and unhygienic environment, for example. Now, you've already stressed on how challenging the situation is, and I can imagine that it's also difficult for aid organizations to respond effectively to the needs of those um, who are most vulnerable. So what would it take to ease the situation of refugees there? Well, the main challenge at the moment is, as I've said, the lack of space and the fact that the camp is just not designed or made for housing such a large number. So more space needs to be made available. When it comes to to challenges in providing aid, of course, it's always a difficult situation and a challenge to rapidly scale up services when the number of refugees increases over a short period of time. There are aid agencies such as the Tanzanian Red Cross and and Doctors Without Borders work very closely with them in providing primary health care and running a hospital and a clinic as well. But there are other services, as I said, such as water and sanitation that need to be adapted to the current number of refugees very, very rapidly. That is Jens Patterson, who is the humanitarian policy advisor for Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, on the line with Jane Matebula.
Still on the issue of Burundian refugees in Tanzania, about 200,000 Burundian refugees in the country have been awarded citizenship certificates, a move hailed by the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the UNHCR. The refugees have been in Tanzania since 1972 and have contributed significantly to the country's economy. Elaborating more on the issue is the UNHCR's legal solutions consultant, Professor Bonaventura Routinwa. These persons were awarded citizenship in 2009, but they were not given citizenship certificates until now, that is four years down the road. The significance of getting their certificate citizenship is that now their new status as Tanzanian citizens by naturalization is confirmed in fact and in law. Now that they have received their certificates, they are free to enjoy whatever rights that they are entitled to as Tanzanian citizens. Professor, are there any specific requirements or a certain criteria for refugees to get citizenship certificates in Tanzania, given that we are witnessing Burundians fleeing to Tanzania due to current instability? What does it take for somebody to get citizenship? In fact, Tanzanian citizenship is granted to refugees under the immigration law. So the Immigration Act and the refugee law does not address issues of citizenship. If any person who has been a refugee in Tanzania wants to become a Tanzanian citizen, they have to apply in accordance with the Citizenship Act and the immigration laws. And under those laws, the grant of citizenship is largely a discretion of the government of Tanzania. There are conditions which you have to meet. The general condition, which is provided for under Section 9 of the Citizenship Act, is that you should have lived in Tanzania for a qualifying period, usually up to 10 years, and you must show that you will make a contribution which is social, technological, economic to Tanzania. You are a person of good character, and if granted citizenship, you intend to reside permanently in Tanzania. Those are the general requirements. But even if you meet those requirements, it's not automatic that you'll be given citizenship. So we can say these people were granted citizenship just at the discretion of the government of Tanzania. And those who are coming right now, there is no chance that they are going to apply and get citizenship. Now, you've already touched on this, but if you could elaborate more on how their lives will change in Tanzania. We know that they had no freedom of movement and couldn't get access to certain services. If you could elaborate more on what, um, how their lives will change in Tanzania. Well, first of all, these persons are found in settlements, which were specifically designated for them. And indeed, as refugees, they are required to remain within designated areas, although that rule was liberally enforced. So people could move in and out. But now that they have become citizens, they can choose even tomorrow, all of them to relocate from the settlement and go anywhere in Tanzania where they think they can make a better life without having to seek permission from anybody. So the fact of being given their certificates of citizenship, it liberates them, gives them greater freedom to pursue whatever endeavors they want in Tanzania, be it economic, social, academic, or whatever. So that is the difference. Otherwise, they were relatively well off where they were. They were given ample land per family, and they have been killing and producing even a surplus. But now they will have greater opportunities now that they are free to go and live anywhere in Tanzania without having to seek permission from anybody. And finally, Professor, tell us more on how Burundian refugees have contributed to the economy of Tanzania. 
Okay, the Burundian refugees who came in 1972, they were settled in two regions of Tabora and Katagi region, as it is known today, and they were engaged in agricultural activities. They were growing cash crops, mainly tobacco and some other cash crops, and they were selling their produce within the domestic as well as external markets, generating income for themselves as well as the local councils as well as taxes for, for the government, but also they were growing food crops well, with a lot of surplus which was supplied to other parts of the country and beyond. Therefore, indeed, they did make a significant contribution to the economies of the areas where they live and the country as a whole. Professor Bonaventura Rutinwa is a legal solutions consultant at the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees in Tanzania on the line from the country's capital, Dar es Salaam, talking to Jane Matebula. Remember that you can also now find us on Channel 902 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. That's Channel 902 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet. Around 1.8 million children have had their schooling interrupted by fighting in Yemen and some youngsters are trying to write on the ground amid shortages. This is according to the United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF. Citing months of intensive bombardment and street fighting in the Arabian Peninsula that have killed 365,600, that have killed rather 3,600 schools have closed so far. UNICEF spokesperson Christophe Bouliérac says reopening the schools is a priority since it helps prevent children's recruitment by armed groups and provides them with a sense of normality. First of all, there were some bombings, there were some string fightings. 3,600 schools had to close for different reasons. Some of them were just occupied by displaced. So there is a disruption in the studies of the children in Yemen. For two of them, grade 9 and grade 12, they have their examination mid of August. If they just don't attend and don't pass it, you know, their, their school year is lost. We don't want that because education is so important during a conflict because it's, it protects children, it helps them also to feel a sense to normalcy. It's, there is a psychosocial impact of education. We support the Yemeni government to mobilize teachers. We give some material because some students have no pen. They just are drawing on the ground. Children are drawing on the ground because they haven't got any paper or pens or any other materials to use. Absolutely, this is what we heard from our colleagues there that shows the extent to which children and their parents want to continue studying. And when you have nothing, when you don't have any paper, well, you study as you can, but they want to study. Despite, you know, the stress, the trauma, despite the children are killed, despite the lack of food and lack of water, they want to continue studying. So we help these two grades to attend their examination. 1.8 million children have not gone to school for more than two months. And even before the conflict in Yemen, two million children were out of the schools. You know, it's really uh, moving to see that children want to study when there are bombings, when there are street fightings, and when there is no food, no electricity, and no paper. So they send a clear message, and we try to be as efficient as possible in this difficult context. How much money do you need for this? We need $11 million to support rehabilitation of damaged schools, provision of teaching and learning resources, training of teachers, and also community workers to provide psychosocial support. It's not just about the education, is it? It's about, as you say, the continuity for the children. 
Yes, again, education is, when we talk about education in a conflict area, it's not only about math, about, you know, literature, about uh, physics. It's a lot about finding back, getting back a sense of normalcy, getting the feeling that life continues and it has an enormous impact on the psychosocial condition of children, you know, to be able to continue to go to school, to have a kind of normalcy that's extremely powerful. That is Christophe Bouliérac, spokesperson for the United Nations Children's Fund, talking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's time for your news headlines. Here's Asanda Matonian. Good evening. South Sudan's warring parties are given up to the 4th of August to review a compromise agreement designed by the Intergovernmental Authority Development. The trial of nine police officers implicated in the death of Mozambican national Mido Marcia in Johannesburg is postponed yet again. And British Prime Minister David Cameron says he is ready to order airstrikes on Islamist militant targets in Libya and Syria. Those are your headlines here on Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa Digest. You're listening to Africa Digest. And the time is 1917.32, rather 17.32 Central African time. South Africa will tomorrow join the rest of the globe in observing World Hepatitis Day, an annual campaign aimed at increasing awareness and understanding of the blood-borne disease. Of the three types of hepatitis, this year's focus will mainly be on hepatitis B and C. According to the World Health Organization, hepatitis B and C cause approximately 80% of liver cancer deaths globally. Also, about 1.4 million people lose their lives every year because of hepatitis. Yet all of these deaths could be prevented. To talk more about this, here's Vanessa Raju, who is the communications manager at the South African National Blood Service, SANBS. Well, the World Health Organization recognizes the 28th of July as a day to create more awareness regarding this disease. You know, internationally and globally, there are about 1.4 million people dying from contracting any one of the hepatitis that exists. So, and obviously, with being the South African National Blood Service, blood safety is of key importance to us. And the prevalence of hepatitis B and C in South Africa is quite crucial for us to pay attention to. And therefore, we test every unit of blood that is collected for hepatitis B and C. Now, this year's theme is focused on prevention. Just how significant is the theme for an organization such as the South African National Blood Service? Well, again, it talks about the safety of the blood. When one understands, you know, guidance and have guidelines around the prevention of it, the quality of the blood that exists from the potential donors out there would undoubtedly be safer because they'll be more aware 
of ways they could actually pick up the disease and ways they can prevent it and obviously more awareness around this will eventually result in safer blood in the country. Which types of hepatitis are most concerning for you and why? Hepatitis B and C with the prevalence in South Africa because it's easily contractable by people who obviously are being treated by perhaps medical procedures where equipment or injections are not actually sterile or sharing drug needles. You know, these are of concerns to us and it obviously impacts the quality of the blood. So we want people to be aware that it is a disease you can easily pick up. The prevention around it is obviously making sure that if medical procedures are performed, that it's done in a safe environment, that you would, you know, you have knowledge of your sexual partners and make sure that you have protected sex with people. All of these impact the hepatitis B and C infection. You mentioned that you always screen for blood-borne viruses such as hepatitis. Is it not an expensive and time-consuming exercise? Well, it is, and, you know, there are hundreds and thousands of blood-borne viruses that exist, and obviously it's going to be almost an impossible task to test every person's blood for every disease that exists. So with the prevalence in this country, looking at the South African environment, we test for HIV, hepatitis B, and C, and syphilis, which are obviously the four main that we pick up as a higher prevalence in this country. There are, of course, others that exist. But unfortunately, like you mentioned, it is a time-consuming and very expensive exercise to test for every type of disease that exists. Is it possible, Vanessa, to donate blood after having hepatitis? No, we would actually encourage people who have had hepatitis to not donate blood. Obviously, the risk will still exist, even though you might have been treated for it. And therefore, you know, not donating would obviously be a better choice. For a disease that already has a vaccine, how far has South Africa come in preventing hepatitis from spreading? Well, I think, you know, creating awareness like we are doing now with the Day of Awareness and part of the South African National Blood Service pre-donation is screening and the questionnaire that you normally would have to complete has questions like, have you used any drugs in the recent months? Have you had more than one sexual partner? Those kind of questions are really designed to know the safety. And by us having strict questionnaires and guidelines like this, we've been lucky enough to be able to pick up and screen people ahead of time and not be able to obviously transfuse blood that is infected. But that said, all viruses carry a window period. So even though, you know, you may not be fully aware that you may have the disease, your test may still come up negative that, you know, you don't have it. But continuous checkups and donating blood continuously will help us ensure that you are safe and, you know, that you know your status at all times. How successful have days such as World Hepatitis Day been in helping organizations such as yours to push for access to treatment, better prevention programs and government action? I think like all days of awareness, the idea is really to have people talking about it, to create awareness, to actually to peek into one's interest about the topic. It's not something everyone knows about. It's not everyone thinks about it, but yet most people are at risk and you probably won't even know it. So by talking about it, it just gives one more knowledge about this hepatitis disease and how you could prevent it. Usually, if you're unaware, you would obviously not be more vigilant of your actions. Whereas now, knowing that if you had 
more than one sexual partner's sexual history you do not know, you know, if you're indulging in drugs with, where you share needles, things like that would actually become a topic of conversation and awareness for yourself. There was Lister Stander, who is, or rather, there was Vanessa Roger, communications manager at the South African National Blood Services, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Let's go to the story with Lister Stander now. There is much excitement about the wildflower season in South Africa's Northern Cape province with early flowering bulbs already being seen in various parts of the province. Lista Stander of the Cheap Scented Flowers says her organization is running the Flower Beach Camp for tourists within the Namako National Park in partnership with the South African National Parks. Every year during the flower season, which is from the end of July, and it all depends on the rains, obviously, but the flower season starts somewhere in July, and then it's for six to eight weeks until middle towards the end of September. So every year from middle August to the middle of September, which is then in the heart of the flower season, we set up camp in one of the camping spots called Dervish Camp that is on the coast one kilometer from the Hoon River entrance into the Namako National Park. And there we put up 12 luxury tents. Each tent has its own ensuite bathroom and toilet facility. We also have a lounge. We have a dining room where we serve scrumptious breakfast and dinners every evening. So this is the only camp where anybody can book to come and stay with chiefs. Normally, we do group camps for corporates and conferences and incentives only, but once a year, we set up camps very exclusively, only the 12 tents, right on the beach at Khrimerava. What is it for the tourists for the flower beach camp? All right, so people would then book. Normally, the stay is two or three nights. People would arrive at beach camp, then use the camp as the base from where to explore the flowers in the Namaka National Park. We serve breakfast and dinner in the camp, lunch. People are up, um, more often than not out of camp because they get in their cars after breakfast. Depending on what the weather is, the flowers start opening at about 10 o'clock in the morning and then guests normally get into their vehicles, drive around in the park and have a look at the flowers. The flowers vary from the coastal section where we get mostly the succulents and more towards the inland, there are all other different kinds of flowers then. People arrive back around about 3, 4 o'clock where we have a lovely high tea at 4. Thereafter at sundown of snacks, we have live music in our daisy lounge, watch the wonderful sunset over the ocean, and then at about 7.30 in the evening, we sit down for a fantastic three-course meal. Um, we also do a second camp, which is at Skopat, which is inland, and that is near Kamikroon, and that is where you see these wonderful carpets of orange daisies. And that camp is now in its second year, so that's still a daisy, but absolutely wonderful, where we also have and tents with private admission facilities, and it's luxury tents. We do proper beds, lovely mattresses. We have, because it's cold in the evenings, we have electric blankets on the bed, lovely hot showers, and then also a lovely warm meal. Our beach camp is this year in its fifth year, so we celebrate greeting our fifth birthday with beach camp this year. What would you say has been the visiting situation with regards to tourists coming to the Flower Beach Camp? Yes, it's grown in popularity over the last 
five years. We have people who come back every year. Obviously, the first year was just to come and see the flowers, but because there's very little accommodation in Namakwa, people can hardly stay inside of the park, and this is the only place where you can really stay amongst the flowers. So, you know, when you say come and um, stay in a tent in the flowers, we really mean that the tents are situated right in the flowers. Our visitors are probably about 50-60% local, and then we have a lot of international visitors who use the camp then to explore the flowers of Namakwa. You know, the first year people come to see the flowers, and then the second and the third and the fourth year, they just come before a holiday. The site where the camp is actually situated is absolutely spectacular. We have whales and dolphins coming past. So even on a rainy day when the flowers perhaps do not open, it's still superb. The natural beauty on the coast there is just magnificent. Are these wild flowers or are they flowers that have been planted? No, it's all wild flowers. Um, as you know, in the Macquarie, it's an arid region which means that it is semi-desert, it's very dry during the rest of the year. But when the rain starts falling, June, July, August, September, it turns into an absolute wonderful flower kingdom. Over 3,000 species of flowers then just start up from everywhere. And we have many people who say that that is on their bucket list and they have to visit the flowers once, but then we have them returning year after year. And now with this process of global warming, how does it impact on the wildflowers in the area? I am not a weather expert, obviously, but the rain impact on when the flowers are. If the rains come early last year, we had our first rains in April, so the flowers were quite early. Um, this year, the first rains were actually towards the end of June. Fantastic rains fell in the entire Namaka region then. And the flowers are beautiful. So, you know, you have different that perhaps have better flowers than others from year to year, but every year there will be flowers somewhere. So it seems as if the flowers this year have actually come a little bit later, which means that the flowers will only start opening towards the middle of July. Well, they have started now, but towards the end of July, the flowers will really be in bloom. But because the season is a little bit late, if you're lucky and the winter holds, probably have flowers towards the end of September. So. <laughs> that was Lister Sander of the Scented Flowers on the line from the Namakwa National Park talking to Wandile. Kalipa, 17.45 Central African time. Here's Usaini Matewul. Thanks, Pumelele. Nigeria's gross government revenues rose in June for the second month in a row to reach 2.44 billion US dollars. This partly due to a crackdown on official corruption. In May, Nigeria's balance of excess crude account stood at 2.2 billion dollars, which is up from 2.1 billion dollars in June. International oil prices at the end of April. Africa's biggest oil producer depends on oil sales of about 70% for its uh, government revenues. 
Meanwhile, Nigeria's troubled bank, Asset Management Corporation of Nigeria, MCON, has asked loan defaulters to immediately square their accounts or it would publish their names. This is in line with a directive by the central bank. Defaulters could also be barred from taking part in Nigerian currency and government debt markets. Amcon has warned bad debtors uh, that if loans remained unpaid, it will also take up steps to recover the debts, including by legal means. Cigarette maker British American uh, Tobacco Zimbabwe Unit reported higher first-half profit after raising prices and cutting costs, this despite a drop in sales due to a depressed economy. BAT Zimbabwe, which is 44% owned by London-listed British American Tobacco, said after tax profit rose to 7.7 million US dollars in the first half of the year to end June, compared with 5.3 million dollars the previous year. BAT Zimbabwe accounts for 82% of cigarettes sold in the southern African country. An economist, Chris Hart, has warned that more job losses are looming in South Africa's mining sector. This as mining companies are faced with a weak global demand as well as a falling metal prices coupled with an increase in costs. This comes after Anglo-American became the second mining giant in as many days to announce its plans to cut jobs over the next couple of years. Earlier on, Lonmin said it would cut around 6,000 jobs. Hart says mining companies are bleeding. That squeeze is leading to massive job cuts. We've seen the start of that. There are more to come. These mining companies are bleeding and they need to actually start going into a survival mode. And some of these companies that were top 40 uh, companies, you know, not a while ago, are falling into mid-cap uh, to small-cap, and they're actually in a fight for actual survival. And some of them are, are iconic names. That's feeding back into the manufacturing sector. And then, of course, you know, overall, our economy is at risk of going into recession. And South African mobile company Celsi has been uh, affirmed a B-minus rating and is off the credit watch. Standard & Poor says uh, the company currently has a stable outlook reflecting that Celsi has ample liquidity to convert its current capital spending and debt maturity needs. The ratings agency notes, however, that uh, the company's business risk profile is primarily constrained by its relatively weak market position as the third largest mobile operator in South Africa after Vodacom and MTN. And uh, Chinese shares slid more than 8% today. This as an unprecedented government rescue plan to prop up valuations ran out of steam. Measure indices suffered their largest one-day drop since 2007, shattering three weeks of relative calm in China's volatile stock markets since Beijing unleashed a barrage of support measures to arrest a slump that started in mid-June. China's market volatility have stoked fears amongst the global investors about the broader health of the world's second biggest economy. And that's how it's looking. And thank you very much for signing Sam for sporting you CS Regal.
In our sports update this hour, we're kicking off with football news. Kenyan representatives in the Sikafa Kagame Cup Gormahia finished top of Group A after seeing off Djibouti's Telecom 3-1 in a one-sided match at the National Stadium Dar es Salaam on Sunday afternoon. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi reports. Sergeant George Blackberry Othiambo scored twice. A sensational talisman Michael Olunga added another in the final group match of the Kenyan champions. The unbeaten Gormahia finished on 10 points with the young IFC of Tanzania second on 9 points. Al Hatum secured the third spot in 7 points. Gormahia will meet Malakia of South Sudan in quarterfinals, while APR will tackle Hal Khatoum. The other quarterfinal will pit Al-Ali Shendi of Sudan against KCCA of Uganda and an all-locals rivalry between Azam FC and Yanga, both of Tanzania. And the Nigeria's under-20 women's national team, the Falconets, completed a handsome home-in-away dismissal of their Liberia counterparts beating the visitors 7-0 at the National Stadium, Abuja, for a 14-1 aggregate win on Saturday. Channel Africa's Tony Ubani reports. In the first leg of their second round fixture, in the race for the 2015 FIFA 20 World Cup Finals, the Nigerian girls had beaten their hopes 7-1 in Liberia two weeks ago. In Morovia, a hat-trick from Yetunde Adebayajo was aided by a blessed by Amarachi Ojima and each by Juliet Sunday and Chiwendo in his way. And on Saturday in Abuja, Finaz Chendo got the Nigerian girls on the way in the 23rd minute before Ojima netted the second in the 26 minutes and Amina Tiakubu got on the score sheet nine minutes later. The prolific the Bayajo got the fourth goal from the penalty spot in the third ninth minute and that was how the first half ended. And in the second half, substitute Joy Bokri got the fifth in the 71st minute before additions by Amina Shakubu in the 74th minute and Bokri again six minutes uh, from the end of time. And Tabo Matlaba will know the full extent of his injury when South Africa's Orlando Pirates returns to South Africa. According to the club's official website, the hard-running fullback was stretched off the pitch after picking up a hamstring strain in Pirates' 1-0 win against CS Faxon on Sunday night. Meanwhile, the squad will leave Tunisia and route to Dubai, where they will connect and arrive back in Johannesburg on Tuesday morning. In athletics, the South African champion and record holder, Wade Fannikerk proved at the weekend when he won 400 meters at the Diamond League in London that whoever wants to win a medal at the World Championships in Beijing next month will have to reckon with him. LJ Fansail came second in the 400 meters hurdles, Zach Fesser second in the long jump, Anna Sochobodwana third in the 200 meters, where the other South Africans were impressed in London. So far this season, Fanikerk has managed to break the South African 400 meters record on two occasions and he has also improved the, the South Africa's 200 meter record. He was also one of, of only four athletes who were able to run the 200 meters in sub 20 seconds and the 400 meters in sub 44 seconds. Fanikerk has also won his last two Diamond League races. His other victory was in Paris. On to cycling news, South Africa's MTN Kobega kept a perfect debut at the Tour de France for the African team on the Champs-Élysées at the weekend. Edvard Boisson-Hagen sprinted to a fine fourth place on Sunday's 21st and final stage. As the riders set off for Paris earlier on Sunday, MTN Kobega could reflect back on what was a dream three weeks for their riders. Team principal Douglas Ryder explains. 
we opened up the 2015 Tour de France with Daniel Peglam and starting and then to end yesterday on the Champs-Élysées with uh, Edward Burke and Morgan our Norwegian runner finishing fourth on the final stage to cap off an incredibly incredibly good Tour de France for our team with uh, you know, ending with 14 teams out of the 21 stages one stage win on stage 14 now known as Mandela Day stage <laughs> so that was amazing for us to win that stage and then you know, wearing a leader's jersey for four days, the King of the Mountains jersey, which Daniel wore for four days, was absolutely brilliant. And then our uh, Belgian rider, Serge Powell, just finished, you know, 13th overall, and uh, and the total team finished fifth overall out of 22 teams. It was more than we'd hoped for, more than we'd dreamed of, and, and you know, an incredible performance by the whole team. About signing the British sprinter and former world champion Mark Cavendish, rider has more. Yeah, that's a rumor at the moment. Uh, you know, we haven't. I actually haven't had a discussion with Mark at all to see if he, he would fit into the culture of our team. And I, um, I need to, you know, I've spoken to his manager, and you know, we are looking at, at uh, making our classics team stronger and and looking at you know getting uh, you know some riders that can win more races with with you know and uh, as being a part of our team. So yeah, he's one of many riders that are looking for for a ride on our team, and um, so yeah, we'll see. But it's. Uh, there's no uh, more discussions than that, so it's a, uh, you know it's not a it's not a done deal, and it's by any means of the imagination, and it's, it's a long way from being a done deal. That's your sport news this hour. This is Africa Digest. At 17.56 Central African Time, let's recap our top stories. The UN mission in the DRC says there's still a lot of work to be done in that country. Ultraba militants in Somalia threaten another attack. In economics, economist warns that more job losses are looming in the South African mining sector. And in sports, Kenya's Mahia tops a Group A of the K Kakame Cup. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Kamala Lazondi, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Charles Moyo, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. For comments on the show, send us emails info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za on Twitter we're on Channel Africa One, Channel Africa One on Twitter, and on SMS we're on plus two seven eight two three three two nine five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five. We leave you with Weba by Kulo the Song and Busimtlong. <laughs>